Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Bishop and Kyle have much to talk about on this episode, including the annual retreat for our diocesan priests, Religious Freedom Week, the Pope's recently released book on the devil, the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and much more, including listener-submitted questions. If you have one, go to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Ask Your Questions. You'll get an email letting you know your question has been received, and then another letting you know when your question will air. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you so much for meeting with us again. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to see you. You just returned a couple weeks from the annual priest retreat. How did it go? What kind of things happened at this year's retreat? Oh, it was a wonderful retreat. It's always great um, to get together with the priests and have this time of prayer together and fraternity. I I really appreciated this year's retreat. We had a uh, Father Michael Barry, who is a Carmelite priest, who was our retreat director. And I invited him to give the retreat to our priests because I had been on a retreat with bishops a few years ago of our region, and he was the retreat director. And I uh-huh. really enjoyed it because he he brought in so much of of the Carmelite saints and their teachings, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, St. Therese, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And I just love that spirituality. So I wanted it, him to come and speak to our priests. And, and really, it was great again. Uh, and I found it to be very, very fruitful. I took a lot of notes, and I look, like to look back at, at those, and kind of has me wanting to read some more of those spiritual classics that I haven't read for a while of, of the Carmelite saints. And I think our priests really got a lot out of it, too. A lot of them said 
how much they appreciated uh, Father Barry's talks. Uh-huh. Are most of them able to make it to the retreat? Yes, this was a little difficult this year because it was early June and some priests couldn't make it because their grade schools were still in session or okay. they had grade school graduations. So next year we're going to make sure we schedule it later in June. So that uh, so we probably had, I think, 47 or 48 of our priests were on the retreat this year. Another thing that uh, came out recently is the USCCB's 2018 annual report on the protection of children and young people. Wondered if you could share anything about this. Yeah, every year we have a report on the implementation of the charter for the protection of children and young people. And the information comes from the audit that's done every year of dioceses throughout the United States by Stonebridge business partners. And it's an audit to make sure that we're all following the guidelines, the norms of the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People. So this auditing group, the auditor visits the dioceses and collects data. And and every year we were audited, our diocese, and every year we've been found to be compliant Mm -hmm. with all the articles of the Charter because we are very diligent in, you know, following all the norms for safe environment and youth protection, making sure that we're providing assistance to victims, and also following properly our procedures when we receive an allegation. So uh, I think it's good that we have this audit. It's a way to keep us, you know, on track. And then the report that the USCCB provides is kind of a summary of of all the dioceses of the United States. It has all the figures, how many allegations during that audit period. This recent report that came out gives all the statistics on the number of allegations of sexual abuse of minors against clergy. There was an increase in the number of allegations, and that's attributed primarily to New York State, where the five New York State dioceses set up that independent reconciliation and compensation program. So a lot of additional allegations came forward. It's important to keep in mind that, you know, when we talk about these allegations, we're the huge majority of them are from decades ago. So right. we're not talking about occurrences of abuse in recent years. Um, there have only been a few. I think in, in this latest um, audit year, there were just three cases uh, in, in that year that were current. Of course, that's three too many, but Mm -hmm. uh, we still see that the allegations um, mostly came between the years 1960 and 1990, and and the peak really was in the 1970s. So that continues to be uh, the findings. The report also mentions, besides allegations, how dioceses are doing with the safe environment training. It's interesting to see that uh, almost 4 million children received safe environment training through the Catholic Church, Hmm. and over 2.5 million adults received safe environment training and background checks. That's nationwide. We also have audits, and this is up to each bishop, where when the auditors come in, Sometimes, depending on whether the bishop says to or not, they'll also audit a sample of parishes and schools regarding their compliance. Well, we'll have that done this year. I always ask for that, Mm -hmm. but they'll only do that every three years, I think. So I like that. I like the fact that they're not just checking on how the diocese is doing, but also going out and see, okay, are the parishes and schools following the diocesan policies? So 
I think auditing is is really important. We can never kind of sit back and say, okay, we have this handled. No, we have to be ever vigilant in mm-hmm. this area. All right, we'll move it on a little bit. There was a book recently released on Pope's teaching on the devil. It was called Rebuking the Devil. I was curious if you've had a chance to look at this book at all. No, I did read about it. Um, and it's published by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So uh-huh. anyone wants to check it out, titled Rebuking the Devil. And it really has uh, various teachings of Pope Francis on um, how to recognize the tricks of the devil and to avoid the devil's efforts. You know, I've read a, you know, a number of talks of Pope Francis where he has mentioned the devil. So I'm anxious to see this kind of compilation of various things he said about the devil. Of course, what's important is that we use the t- powerful tools of spiritual combat against the devil, like the word of God and adoration of God and the Blessed Sacrament, participating in the sacraments, prayer, fasting, intercession of Mary, the Holy Rosary. All of these things are kind of a shield for us against the temptations and empty promises of the devil. So I, yeah, I think it'd be worthwhile. I'm looking forward to reading it. I think a lot of us tend to focus more on the the positive that there's God and there's Jesus and there's saints and there's angels. And we tend to forget or neglect or maybe even are embarrassed to talk about or mention the devil because then you kind of sound like one of these crazy people that's always talking about the devil and demons and stuff. And maybe, maybe a little scared to talk about it as well. I guess what are the advantages of recognizing the presence of the devil and realizing that it's a, a reality? Well, I think it's important because, you know, some people don't believe in the devil. Uh, they think it's just mythology, but all one has to do is read the Gospels and how often Jesus speaks about the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, or read exorcism accounts right, and right. stories. That was the main part of the ministry was, yeah. was exorcism. But I do think it's important that we keep our eyes fixed on, on the Lord Jesus. I mean, I think if someone could become too preoccupied and, mm. about you know, the demonic stuff, no, number one also is always the sovereignty of Christ. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, but we also have to battle evil in our lives and evil in the world and recognize that, yeah, there are efforts by the devil to draw us away from, from the Lord. And uh, so we need to actively combat or fight against the devil. But our focus is always on Christ and our trust that he is all-powerful. Well, one other thing, we're in the middle of Religious Freedom Week. It goes from June 22nd to June 29th. We talked about this quite a bit last year, including Saints Thomas More and John Fisher, whose feast day is June 22nd, and St. Peter and Paul, whose feast day is June 29th. But thought maybe you could just review a little bit about what Religious Freedom Week is and why this is something that we, we do as a church. Yeah, I mean, a few years ago, we began what was called the Fortnight for Freedom. Mm-hmm. But now it's Religious Freedom Week. And this year, it's from June 22nd to June 29th. So beginning with the feasts of, Feast of Saints Thomas More and John Fisher. And this year, the theme is Strength in Hope. Strength mm-hmm. in Hope. The idea, it, it comes from uh, Second Vatican Council which talks about how among the trials of this life, uh, we find strength in hope, convinced that 
as St. Paul wrote, the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come that will be revealed in us. So basically, religious freedom is extremely important. It's part of our uh, human dignity that we should be free to seek the truth and to live in accordance with that truth. And the church, for example, needs the space to carry out its mission without any undue interference mm -hmm. from the state. And we, of course, some years ago, we were fighting very strongly against the HHS mandate, which was requiring things that go against our faith and, and, and moral teaching regarding the provision of, of contraception. We see violations of religious freedom all around the world. International religious freedom is part of our uh, of, of what we remember during Religious Freedom Week, those who are persecuted for their faith, where there's really hard persecution, even imprisonment, sometimes death. Hmm. We know that there are certain countries where one can be imprisoned or put to death because of their Christian faith or, or their faith. But then also on the national scene, we've seen some advances. Um, the U.S. bishops were very happy um, recently, I guess a couple months ago, when the Department of Health and Human Services adopted some new regulations to ensure that the existing laws that protect the rights of conscience and health care are followed and enforced. So we've had these laws and policies protecting religious freedom, but they weren't being enforced. I mean, you might remember the famous case, the New York nurse, Kathy DiCarlo, being coerced to participate in an abortion against their own beliefs, you know, that kind of coercion we've had, we need to fight against. What I'm happy is that uh, the president administration uh, said, no, we're going to start to enforce these laws, these because they really have to do with fundamental civil rights. Mm -hmm. So when there are violations of religious freedom in that area, those who violate need to be held accountable. Of course, what we U.S. bishops and many who share our views on this believe we need permanent legislative relief in this area through passage of the Conscience Protection Act mm -hmm. to give victims of discrimination the ability to defend their rights in court, that no one should be forced to violate their deeply held convictions about the sanctity of human life. So I think that's an important thing that we continue to fight for, the passage of the Conscience Protection Act. Mm -hmm. Another thing I think that uh, has us bishops concerned is the Equality Act, which was passed by the U.S. House of Representatives last month, where it adds the terms sexual orientation and gender identity to the definition of sex in federal civil rights laws. We have opposed this Equality Act, and one of the reasons it would explicitly prohibit the Bipartisan Religious Freedom Restora Restoration Act of 1993 from applying. So obviously we support the human dignity of every individual, including those, you know, whatever their sexual orientation or however they identify their gender, whatever. We oppose unjust discrimination, uh, but we're concerned about this Equality Act because it would be requiring things that would 
um, would go against our faith, violate our, our principles. For example, uh, it would threaten some of our charitable services. You know, we have foster care and adoption agencies mm -hmm. that we run, and this would make it mandatory that we would have to place children with same-sex partners, regardless of the wishes of the birth mother or, you know, our belief that a child would do best to have a, a mother and a father. Mm -hmm. It would open up all kinds of things. Part of the issue, too, is that the Equality Act fails to recognize the difference between the person who we believe has dignity and is entitled to recognition of that dignity and the actions of the person, mm -hmm. that there is a difference because there are ethical and social ramifications from the actions of a person. Mm -hmm. So when you conflate those two, all kinds of complications result. You know, I think the idea that they're gonna explicitly retract religious freedom, I think is departing from a very fundamental principle of our country, mm -hmm. the freedom of religion. Another thing is we have people who experience gender dysphoria or gender incongruence. They deserve our care, our compassion. And, you know, these people should not be harmed. The Equality Act, however, would force many healthcare professionals to perform treatments and procedures associated with gender transition that we would have ethical problems mm -hmm. with, uh, and actually medical problems too. Right. Um, you know, sometimes, Tragically, these kinds of surgeries uh, will exacerbate the long-term rate of suicide among those identifying as transgender. So there's all kinds of problems with the Equality Act. And uh, so these are kinds of things, some of the things that we should be thinking about uh, during the Religious Freedom Week. Of course, Religious Freedom Week is also time for prayer, to pray for all those whose religious freedom is denied or threatened, but also to kind of keep track of where we're at uh, and in this whole area of religious liberty in our own country and abroad. Yeah. So obviously something to pray for during this special week, this Religious Freedom Week. Are there also action steps that we should be taking this week as far as uh, writing to our lawmakers or to I mean, petitions? that's always, I, I mean, I'd say, you know, we have that, um, that's really all, uh, all year long, uh, uh -huh. we do put out alerts when there's specific legislation being considered and say to contact your representatives. Mm -hmm. um, so I encourage people to get onto the USCCB website on religious freedom. Um, but you will also send out alerts from the diocese when various things come up. But there's various resources that you can look. There's social media downloads on the USCCB website for Religious Freedom Week. People can go on there, and uh, there's bulletin inserts that have been provided. So there are a lot of good resources. All right. Well, great. Thank you for sharing that. Coming up, we'll talk about St. Jose Maria Escriva, founder of Opus Dei and also the Solemnity of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, and more right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we have a couple feasts this week. Today is the Feast of St. Jose Maria Escriva, who is the founder of Opus Dei and more. Can you share a little bit about his life? Yeah, you know, I, I, St. Jose Maria Escrivá 
the founder of Opus Dei, I think, really was entrusted with a, a great mission from the Lord. And, um, and the whole idea was to open up in the church a path in which people could understand that they are called to seek holiness through the sanctification of ordinary work in the middle of the world. Now, this goes back to the 1930s, the whole idea that kind of you withdrew from the world or whatever, and that's how you became holy, you became mm. a religious, or you became a priest, or a monk, or whatever, a religious sister. And the universal call to holiness that we is taught by Second Vatican Council was really anticipated by St. Jose Maria. And he's talking about in all those normal human activities that uh, lay people are involved in, daily work can be sanctified and it sanctifies and we can be sanctified so that's the whole idea of opus day and it's really we have a opus day center called winmore up in south bend uh, and i know a lot of our people like to go there i recommend the writings of saint jose maria escriba beautiful i find it really excellent uh, spiritual reading it's all about you know sanctification as we celebrate his his feast day, you know he's one of the recent uh, saints of the church. He was canonized by Pope John Paul II in uh, 2002, and we see so many good fruits of his uh, uh, of his movement. Some of his good, I mean, his books have have reached millions of copies. The Way, uh, his book on that's called Christ is Passing By. Uh, the Way of the Cross. He, he has a lot of good books. One can do a Google search and find those books. People who are involved in Opus Dei, either as members or as uh, associates, really can grow in their own interior life. He was truly a contemplative in the midst of the world. And, you know, he, he gives many good practical suggestions on how to become holy through the normal, everyday life and work that people have. And what is Opus Dei? Work of God is what it means. Uh, it's a personal prelature. So it has personal its prelature. Personal prelature. So okay. it has its own bishop, its huh. own ecclesiastical superior. So they can, for example, incarnate priests. So they would have their own priests. It's kind of a specific kind of canonical reality, separate from a diocese, kind of unusual, a personal prelature. Okay, great. Also, on Friday, June 28th, is the Solemnity of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. We hear about the Sacred Heart of Jesus a lot. Can you talk a little bit about what the Feast of the Sacred Heart is? Yeah, it's a solemnity, so it has a very high rank. It's also, since the time of John Paul II, it's been designated as a, a special day to pray for the sanctification of priests. Mm. And what a great feast to, to, to have that intention. It's a beautiful feast. It always happens on the Friday after the Solemnity of Corpus Christi. So after we celebrate the great mystery of the Eucharist, then we move on to celebrate the Sacred Heart of Jesus. There's an intimate connection, of course, between the Eucharist as a sacrament of love and the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which, um, you know, expands in love for us. Yeah, I encourage people especially to observe this feast. You have a chance to attend Mass on the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart or to pray the Litany of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which is particularly beautiful, or to have a holy hour on that day. 
I think it's great that the church has a feast that centers on the love of Jesus and this image of his heart pierced for our offenses and how we, the church, were born from the pierced heart of Jesus as the blood and water flowed from his heart, baptism and Eucharist, the church born from the heart of Jesus, born from love and called to be his community of love in the world. Of course, there are private revelations of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, for example, to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, various saints who've had great devotion to the Sacred Heart. St. John Eudes, for example, or St. Margaret Mary can read about the promises of, of the Sacred Heart of Jesus to Margaret Mary. And so there's a lot of good devotion out there. Uh, the Jesuits were strong promoters of devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So there's a lot of good uh, Jesuit writers on on this. Of course, there have been encyclicals by popes like Pope hmm. Pius XII, a very famous encyclical on the Sacred Heart. Um, so it's been a devotion that's been promoted by popes and by saints. So you can't go wrong being <laughs> devoted to the Sacred Heart. I also encourage people to have an image of the Sacred Heart enthroned in their home. Okay. I think that was a very popular tradition years ago. I'd uh -huh. love to see that back. There's even a little ceremony where you can have the enthronement of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in your home. And there's certain prayers that are said. You have a priest come and blesses it. And that's a really neat thing to do as well. Is that similar to consecrating your family to the Sacred Heart? It would be, yeah, okay. it's similar. Um, it's kind of like when you enthrone an image of the Sacred Heart in one's home, that's a reminder of the centrality of Christ in the life of the home, the domestic church, but also of our own personal consecration to the Lord and consecration to His Sacred Heart. And there are, as you said, family consecrations. Okay. Well, another thing that we always look forward to is when you break down scripture and this Sunday, June 30th, the gospel reading is Luke chapter nine, verses 51 through 62. And there's, seems like there's a lot packed into this gospel. I'm kind of curious what we can learn from this. At one point, it seems like Jesus says that he's homeless. I'm not sure if he's talking about literally he doesn't have a home or just when traveling, People aren't welcoming them into their home all the time, and he's kind of uh, just bouncing around from place to place, <laughs> kind of looking for a home. So maybe you could break yeah. this down for us a little bit. I'd say it's the latter, okay. but let's, uh, you know, this gospel, how about if I read it, but I want to read it in two sections, because there's really two sections. Sure. So I'll read the first half, uh, and then kind of try to do a little reflection on it. Again, this is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. When the days for Jesus's being taken up were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his reception there, but they would not welcome him because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they journeyed to another village. So let me talk about this. First of all, it begins with St. Luke telling us that when the days for his being taken up were fulfilled. So this was 
referring to you know Jesus's departure from this life when okay. he would be taken up by God into heaven. So it's kind of pointing now to his his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem. Notice that if you look at the literal translation it's it's really he set his face to journey to Jerusalem. And that was an Old Testament idiom, meaning real resolve. You know, Jesus was resolved. Mm -hmm. He set his face, okay, resolved to do the will of his Father. Uh I mean, that's Jesus, even if it meant suffering, even if it meant death, he set out to Jerusalem with resolve. He set his face to uh, accomplish God's plan. So, It says in the gospel that he sent messengers ahead of him. It was probably to make arrangements. Um, There were probably uh, a number of disciples who were with him as they were beginning this this trek to Jerusalem. It would have taken about three days on foot to go through Samaria. Mm -hmm. Um, So it would be normal to send messengers ahead to arrange accommodations. But of course, how do you get accommodations in Samaria? Remember, these were considered enemies of the Jews. That region of Samaria, which is south of Galilee and north of Judea, it's that that region between Galilee and Jerusalem, it wasn't a Jewish area. Galilee was Jewish, uh, Judea was Jewish, but the kingdom was split, so you have this Samaria in between. And the Samaritans were a mixed race and uh, really mixed in their religion too. And they were considered um, by the Jews to kind of be heretics. You know, they were, Hmm. if you read the book of Sirach, they called Samaritans degenerate folk. Um, But the Samaritans thought of themselves as the, as really the true Israelites. And they, they considered that the Jews were not. So there was this really, this division between Jews and Samaritans. And one of the reasons, one of the things you see is they erected a temple to God right in the middle of Samaria on Mount Gerizim. And that's where they believed God wanted to be worshiped. Whereas, of course, the Jews believed on Mount Zion uh, in Jerusalem. So there was this um, tension between Jews and Samaritans. Notice Jesus didn't avoid going through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And, you know, he probably thought they're not going to provide hospitality (laughs) to Jews, Jews especially going to Jerusalem. But he gave them an opportunity to receive him. We read that, however, in the next sentence, but they would not welcome him because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. Why would they welcome or provide lodging? or food for Jews on their way to their temple in Jerusalem. They believed that God should be worshipped on Mount Gerizim, on the temple that they had built, Mm -hmm. that had been destroyed by Jews, by the way. So when they were refused um, hospitality, when they weren't welcomed, we have the sons of thunder, James (laughs) and John, (laughs) asking, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? So that's kind of the natural human reaction. I mean, they, uh, you know, don't you love the apostles? They make us feel better sometimes. Right. I know they, how to solve this problem. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Fire you know, from heaven. Basically, they wanted to wipe, wipe out their village. Uh, you know, <laughs> do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Of course, they, they still don't get it. You know, that's one thing about so many of the disciples. 
were misguided. I mean, Jesus had told them, you know, love your enemies. Mm-hmm. He had said to them, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know, they, you know sometimes I think, just like for us, the, the teachings of the Lord can go in one ear and out the other. Right. Their natural human reaction was revenge. You know, okay, they're not providing us hospitality. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? What did Jesus tell us to do if we were not given hospitality? He just said, shake the dust from your feet as you leave. He never talked about, you know, revenge or violence. Right. Uh, So, Jesus obviously wasn't happy with James and John (laughs) asking that. We read that it says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. You know, no, Jesus didn't want them, want to incinerate the village. Uh, Right. How often, though, I think how we fail to understand the way of Jesus, that we're, we can often be like James and John, you know, like get upset about something. I mean, I read sometimes in letters or whatever, and I think, come on, didn't Jesus teach us? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Um, and then Luke notes that they journeyed then to another village. And we don't know where, probably, perhaps another Samaritan village, whether they were welcomed or not, it doesn't say. All right. Well, before we get to part two, let's take a break and remind people that they can ask their questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll have part two of Sunday's gospel from Luke chapter 9. Right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop. We've been talking about Sunday's gospel, and Bishop, you went through the first half, which was fascinating. I'm looking forward to part two of Sunday's gospel. As they were proceeding on their journey, someone said to him, I will follow wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have dens, and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his to rest his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But he answered him, Let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to my family at home. To him, Jesus said, No one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. So, as they were proceeding on their journey to Jerusalem, we have three different people who come up to Jesus. And it's very interesting to look at each one. The first one really takes the initiative. This one comes right up to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow you. So it's kind of like open-ended. It's kind of unconditional. I'll go. I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, where is Jesus going? He's going to his crucifixion. Um, I doubt that that person knew what he was saying. I'll go wherever you go. (laughs) And how does Jesus answer that? He says, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Now, Jesus had just been turned away by a Samaritan village. So, 
yeah, he was basically, at this point, I guess you could say homeless. So he's warning this disciple, say, I'll follow you wherever you go. Well, you know, where I'm going, there may not be a place to sleep. Right. Uh, there'll be hardships. Um, he doesn't tell him, well, you know, I'm going to suffer. I'm going on the way to suffer and die. But he, he mentions that the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. So he's kind of telling him, okay, it's not that easy. Okay, you can follow me, but don't think it's, it's, it's an easy way. Right. Um, you know, you may not have any place to sleep at night. The cost of discipleship, you know. So then you get the second one. And this time, Jesus takes initiative. He just sees another person and he says, follow me. And how did that one reply? He says, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. There's something else this guy wants to take care of first. Hmm. Now, I don't know. We don't know if his father had already died or maybe was dying. Mm -hmm. uh, usually they would bury someone the same day that they died. So I bet his father maybe was very sick and dying, no. maybe not yet dead. But any, in any case, this was an important religious duty for the Jews. Burying the dead was really important, especially for a son uh, toward his parents. Sure. This guy who, to whom Jesus said, follow me, uh, is willing to follow Jesus, but only after he fulfilled his obligation to his family. Isn't it interesting how an obligation held him back from really living as Jesus' disciple wholeheartedly? Hmm. So that's why Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. That sounds pretty harsh. Yeah. <laughs> um, but basically he's saying here, you know, this come this is first. Mm -hmm. uh, becoming part of the family of Jesus may require leaving one's own family behind. The Lord is calling him to follow him immediately, to be part of his mission. And nothing, not even a family obligation, should get in the way of that. Mm -hmm. So that's Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. This is like an unconditional thing. So then the third one, third guy says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family at home. So this is similar. Mm -hmm. So you have a guy volunteering to be a disciple of Jesus, but wants to address his family obligation first. He wants to be able to go back and say farewell. That seems pretty reasonable. Yeah. Um, but it's a condition. You know, yeah. it's a conditional offer of discipleship. It's like, I will follow you, but. Right. I will follow you, but. I mean, if Jesus is really the Lord of one's life, there can be no buts. Uh -huh. You know, no divided loyalties. And so often we can be like that. I'll follow you, Lord, but, you know. Um, so how does Jesus respond? He says to him, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. So this, this agricultural image, I mean, once a farmer sets his hand to the plow, if he keeps, if he's looking back behind, he's not going to get the work done and uh, things will get messed up in his uh, farming uh, so in, in, in following Jesus, it's, we can't look back. I mean, you have to move forward. You know, it demands our full attention. You know, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. To enter into God's kingdom, his reign, you know, it means our full attention. It means our total commitment 
uh, being resolute. Jesus was resolutely going up to Jerusalem to do his Father's will. So those who follow him need to be resolute in their discipleship and not mm -hmm. look back. And that means even above family obligations. So I think these would be disciples. This is pretty radical, but it talks about, it's really the radical nature of discipleship. I think these three examples are, are very helpful to us. We don't really know how they all ultimately responded mm -hmm. after what Jesus said, did they? Right. Follow him or not, we don't know. But I think we can put ourselves in their place and kind of think about Jesus saying those, those things to us. And are we willing to leave everything behind? Are we real, willing to pay the cost of discipleship? Yeah. All right. Well, that's such a great reflection. And anybody that has questions can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have questions about Catholics not living out their faith and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And our first question that was submitted by a listener is, as a college student, I am constantly surrounded by all types of different people. One thing that bothers me is meeting with people who identify themselves as Catholic, but are not so in line with the faith. One particular aspect is with birth control. I feel like I'm the only person who is not on the pill. Any ideas on how I can get through to these young people about the dangers of birth control, as well as what the views of it are from a Catholic stance? Good question. Um, you know, I think there are uh, a lot of people uh, who identify as Catholics, but, you know, struggle with certain teachings of the church, especially in the area of sexual morality, birth control or, or artificial contraception are, is mentioned by the caller. I really think what's important, one, one has to be patient. Remember, there's all kinds of things that people are influenced by in our culture. So we do need to have evangelization and catechesis. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're doing a pretty good job in our Catholic schools, for example, in our Catholic high schools, communicating the teachings of the church in this area. And I think a lot of, pe a lot of young people I know who actually do adhere and believe in the church's teaching in this area. Sure. Certainly a minority, but still, um, I think we're pretty, we're, we've been successful in this. But how do, does this caller as a college student do it? Mm -hmm. I think, first of all, one's own witness to the faith and sharing with these friends or, or acquaintances why the church teaches what it does. There's a lot of good books mm -hmm. I could, you could recommend to a friend who's, or to a, an acquaintance. You could say, here, I, I suggest that you read this. Um, certainly John Paul II's Theology of the Body, but there's a lot of good stuff out there explaining why the church teaches what it does mm -hmm. about, about contraception to kind of evangelize, mm -hmm. to share that teaching. And it really gets down to some very fundamental things, and that is, what is the meaning of sex? And what is the purpose? You know, so we look at uh, Paul VI uh, encyclical, Humane Vitae, mm -hmm. you could share that. And also some more popular books that kind of uh, would perhaps resonate more with uh, young adults today. Yeah. Uh, but I do believe that in the end, the truth of our faith in this area is attractive. It's just very countercultural. Right. Um, 
you know, I say be patient, uh-huh. but also don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to share the truth of, of the Christian message. All right. Thank you for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Next week will be our 100th episode, so people can tune in for hard to believe some special surprises that we have, a special celebration. So looking forward to it. So thank you, Bishop, for 99 great episodes of Truth and Charity. You're welcome. Thank you, Kyle. I can't believe we've done that many shows. Yeah, time flies. Yeah. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God. God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. Next week, we'll celebrate the 100th episode of Truth and Charity. We'll play some of our favorite moments from the past two years, including the times kids have had questions for Bishop and one of Bishop's most memorable scripture reflections from this past Easter season. And we'll surprise him with one of his favorite foods he doesn't get to eat very often. To catch up on any of our previous episodes, go to RedeemerRadio.com and select Truth and Charity. Or download the Redeemer Radio app and listen there. To make sure you don't miss out on future shows, search for Truth and Charity wherever you listen to podcasts and select subscribe. You'll get a notification every time a new episode is available and you can listen anytime. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.